Great to be with you all this morning. If I haven't had the chance to meet you yet, my name is John. I serve as the lead pastor here at Elmwood. And uh, as we come to this passage that you heard read just a moment ago, I want to invite you to join me in a word of prayer. God, we are grateful for the good news of Christmas that you sent your son. We're grateful for the ways that you have accomplished our deliverance. We're grateful for the ways that you have not left us in darkness, but that you have come and you have joined us in humanity, in your son Jesus, and you have come into the darkness in order to shine light. We ask that you would help us see Jesus clearly today. We ask that you would help us to understand this passage that we're looking at and leave here with a deeper trust in Jesus, who is our Prince of Peace. We ask this in his name. Amen. We live in a world where peace is hard to come by. Barna recently published some research asking the question, what are Americans looking for in spirituality? And do you want to take a guess as to what was at the top of that list? Inner peace. According to their research of the people that they uh, interviewed, four out of ten people, and that's just people broadly, whether they are uh, Christian or not Christian, but they're looking to Christianity or to spirituality or to religion, Uh, Sort of broadly, four out of ten people come to spirituality looking for a kind of deep inner peace. And that shouldn't really surprise us, because we live in a world where peace is hard to come by. And so it shouldn't surprise us that people are searching for and looking for peace any place they can find it. As we look around the world today, we can see that there are more than one war that are actively taking place in both Ukraine and in the Middle East and Israel. And there are other wars, there's other conflicts, there's other civil unrest that we just don't hear about because it doesn't end up on our news feed for whatever reason. But there's so much war that is taking place in our world. And sometimes as we look out at our worlds, it seems like global peace seems to be an impossible dream because peace is hard to come by. But it's not just out there that peace is hard to come by. Every single one of us lives our own personal lives with some degree of dispeace. Every single one of us lives with some degree of unsettledness or anxiety or angst, some kind of dispeace. And so for you this morning, that dispeace may be about a relationship in your life or a set of relationships in your life, maybe with your spouse or maybe with your parents. Maybe with your children, maybe with your siblings, maybe with your classmates or your coworkers or your neighbors. There's dispeace or unsettledness in some of your relationships. You may live with dispeace about your vocation. You may look at your work and see how difficult and toilsome it is. And to see how uh, it, maybe it doesn't feel like it's the best use of your gifting or it's not doesn't fit your personality very well. Or um, it's also related to, uh, it connects with your finances. And so maybe you are unemployed or underemployed. And so as it relates to your work and the things that you do and your finances, there's a level of dispeace in your life. You may live with dispeace about your own body. Maybe that's feelings of shame or self-consciousness. 
that you feel or that you sense that, that, you know, whether it's there or not, you sense people's view of your body in a certain way and you feel uh, self-conscious. You feel unsettled about that. Maybe it's due to chronic or acute illness or the accumulation of the effects of old age. But maybe you here today live with dispeace with your own body and you may also be here living with dispeace about your relationship with God. You may feel distant from God. You may feel like your relationship with him is strained or it's just not where you want it to be or it's not like it once was. And you live with a kind of dispeace. We all live with some degree of dispeace in our lives and we could all, you know, we could list numerous other areas where this is true. And this dispeace is because we live in a world where peace is hard to come by. We've been in a series of messages this Advent season called Welcoming Our Servant King. And what we're attempting to do over these brief weeks is do the best we can to sort of mine the depths in the time that we have of this sort of one aspect of the Christmas story. And that is that this cute little baby that's lying in a manger that we all, you know, look at and sort of fawn over, that little baby is God himself who is our king. He's the king of the universe. And so we want to be thinking together about, well, what does it look like for us to welcome him as our king? What does it look like for us to live as his uh, as his servants to live with him as our king. And so we're setting out to do that over uh, this brief series. This morning, what we're going to be thinking about together is how Jesus is our Prince of Peace. So let's look at this passage that you heard read from Isaiah 9. And as we do so, we're going to look at it in uh, two different parts. The first thing we see in this passage uh, is a people walking in darkness. As you read Isaiah 9, the first thing that jumps out to you is this is a people walking in in darkness. These are verses that are familiar to many of us. If you've been a follower of Jesus for any length of time, uh, even if you're not a follower of Jesus here today, you might be familiar with these verses that say in Isaiah 9 verse 2, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. So there's a people walking in darkness. And for us to really understand the depth of the darkness into which Isaiah is speaking here, we have to sort of uh, pull back for a moment and, and sort of just take stock, just observe the geopolitical realities of Isaiah's day. And as we do so, in order to do that, we've got to jump back to, sort of rewind the tape back to Isaiah chapter 7. And as we uh, go back to chapter 7, we're not going to read all of this this morning. Maybe that's a, a little assignment for you this week is to read Isaiah 7 to 9 all in one sitting. And you'll get a, a better sense of this. But here's what's happening in Isaiah chapter 7. The kingdom of Israel is divided. They're experiencing civil war. After the reign of King David, after the reign of King Solomon, the kingdom goes into civil war. And so there is, uh, in the south is the kingdom of Judah, and in the north is the kingdom of Israel. Israel is also called Samaria uh, in other places, so don't be confused by uh, the language when you see that referred to uh, Samaria referring to Israel. So Israel is in the north, Judah is in the south. Ahaz is a man who is the king of the nation of Judah in the south. And Ahaz receives word that the northern kingdom of Israel has joined together with uh, this, this neighboring nation, with Aram, which is modern-day Syria. And the northern kingdom of Israel and Syria are joining together and are going to attack the southern kingdom of Judah. And so Ahaz is, rightly so, uh, sort of terrified of this 
this idea. And so uh, he's living just kind of petrified because, you know, Aram and northern kingdom of Israel are significantly larger than the southern kingdom of Judah is. Now, in the midst of all of the, uh, the, the fear that, that Ahaz has, he receives a word from God from the prophet Isaiah. And essentially that word is, don't worry about your neighbors to the north. Okay, I know it looks scary. I know it's frightening. But their plans, this political alliance they've created to come and invade you, it's not going to work. It's going to fail. So just don't worry about it. You don't have to, you don't have to worry. And he says, I want to prove it to you. I want you, Ahaz, to ask me for a sign. Anything you want. As high as heaven, as low as Sheol. Ask me for anything you want. I want to prove it to you. And so what we see here is this picture of God is inviting Ahaz to trust him. Right? Ahaz doesn't hear the word of God saying, uh, you shouldn't be afraid. And then say, okay, well, I'm not sure I trust you, God. You've got to give me a sign. No, God himself is the one who says to Ahaz, I want you to ask me for a sign. I want to give you a sign. He's inviting Ahaz to trust him instead of being afraid of these neighboring nations that are planning to invade him. Ahaz, however, chooses not to trust Yahweh. He chooses not to trust God. And so we read in chapter 7, verse 10, where Yahweh says to Ahaz, ask the Lord your God for a sign... And then in verse 12, Ahaz said, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. Ironically, him not putting God to the test is actually putting God to the test. Because God instructed him. God was one who told him, ask me for a sign. And Ahaz says, I'm not going to do what you say, God. I'm going to do what's right in my own eyes instead of listening to your instruction which is a pattern that's been happening since the garden. So because Ahaz is terrified, and because he chooses not to trust the instruction of God, what he does instead is he goes out and forms a political alliance of his own. We're not told about this in the book of Isaiah, but if you go read the book of 2 Kings chapter 16, you see that Ahaz, because he was afraid of this political alliance between Aram and uh, the nation in the north of Israel, he went to Assyria, which was the world superpower at the time, and basically said, let's make a deal. We will become your vassal state if you provide us with military protection. Okay, so just, just notice here, you know, Judah is this little kingdom in the south, and then Israel and Aram, and it looks really big and scary. Uh, the nation of Assyria, at the time of Isaiah's writing, was what was encompassed in this circle, and this is the nation of Judah. Okay, so you look at it, and you're like, okay, I, I feel afraid of these groups of people that look really big and scary. You know, you know who would be great people to protect us? The most powerful nation on the planet. The biggest, most powerful, scary uh, military that's ever existed in the history of the world. That's who I want on my side to protect me. And so he goes and makes this political alliance with Assyria. And as a result of that, Ahaz receives a word of judgment. Listen to what Isaiah says in chapter 7, verse 13, as a response to, in response to Ahaz saying, I will not ask the Lord for a sign. Verse 13, then Isaiah said, Hear now, you house of David. Is it not enough to try the patience of humans? Will you try the patience of my God also? 
Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. Verse 17. The Lord will bring on you and on your people and on the house of your father is a time unlike any since Ephraim broke away from Judah. He will bring the king of Assyria. So this word of judgment that comes through Isaiah is a way of saying, okay, so you think you're going to look to Assyria for protection? What you don't realize is that that nation that you are looking to is going to turn around and crush you, will utterly destroy you. And so this, this promise of judgment, of the coming of Assyria to crush the nation of Judah in the south, this is the darkness into which Isaiah is speaking. Isaiah is speaking about a future time where after the nation of Israel is, uh, the nation of Judah, rather, in the south, is destroyed by Assyria. That's, that's what he's speaking about. Now, thankfully, our circumstances are very, very different from the circumstances that are being experienced by God's people in this passage. Our circumstances are very different, but we, too, are a people walking in deep darkness. For some of us here this morning, that is a kind of personal darkness that you find yourself walking through. There are circumstances in your life. You carry with you, there's difficulties, there's pains, there's losses, there's the accumulation of disappointments. Where you look at your life and you say, I thought I was going to be here and I'm here. Or I thought I would be here by now and I'm still over here. And just the weight of the disappointments of, oh, I thought this was how my life was going to turn out, and it didn't turn out that way. The accumulation of those disappointments. There's uh, the personal darkness of our own personal uh, mental health or emotional health. There's the personal darkness of the things that we've done in the past that we uh, sometimes can't seem to get out of our heads and can't seem to uh, forgive ourselves for. We can't let those things go. Sometimes it's things that have been done to us that have deeply shaped us and formed us into who we are. And so uh, many of us here today would be able to identify personal darkness that we are walking through even right now this morning. For some of us, it's spiritual darkness. Uh, there's, there's people throughout the history of the church who have called this the dark night of the soul, where you feel the complete and total absence of God. You feel he's distant. You feel that he's gone. You feel like there, there's just no connection. There's no relational intimacy that you feel. And so maybe you find yourself in that place today of saying, you know, I sometimes just struggle to get out of bed and go to church on Sunday mornings. I don't feel anything. I don't uh, have a strong desire to read my Bible or to pray or to do the things that I know I should be doing. I just don't feel anything. Maybe you feel abandoned by God for some circumstances in your life. Maybe you feel like God has betrayed you in some way. There's all sorts of ways that we experience spiritual darkness. Maybe some of you here this morning, and you are, are just feeling, uh, you, you would describe your spiritual darkness as just a kind of spiritual confusion. You're saying, you know, I, I just don't even know what to believe. I don't know where to turn. I don't know uh, what to think. And just the, the spiritual confusion of, man, what's right and what's true, and where do I turn and who do I listen to? Those things are a kind of spiritual darkness that some of you are even walking through this morning. All of us together are walking through a kind of cultural darkness, and that's true of 
basically everyone who's been a follower of Jesus and everyone who's followed God in the history of uh, following God. And that is because there's aspects of our culture and there's aspects of every culture that run contrary to what we know to be God's design for us. There's aspects of the way that we view the world and the way that our culture thinks about certain different areas of life uh, that we know is not the way God has designed our lives or our bodies or our relationships or our actions. And so we find ourselves sometimes looking around saying, man, how did we get to where we are today? And sometimes we live and we can just feel the acuteness of the spiritual uh, and, and the sort of cultural darkness that we find ourselves walking in the midst of. So even though our circumstances, thankfully, are very different than theirs, we too are a people walking in deep darkness. And the good news is this, that God did not leave his people in darkness. God didn't leave his people in darkness, but rather we see in this passage that in the face of the impending discipline that God is going to bring through Assyria, he also speaks a word of hope. He speaks a word of hope that the darkness that they are experiencing and walking through will not have the last word. And so we see in this passage a people walking in darkness. And the second thing we can observe is a promise of hope and restoration. We do see a people walking in darkness. And we also see a promise of hope and restoration. Listen as I read verses 2 through 5 of Isaiah chapter 9. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the days of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar that crosses their shoulders, the rod of their oppressors, Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. Remember that in these verses, Isaiah is prophetically looking forward to a time after God's people are destroyed by Assyria. And he gives this word of hope and this word of encouragement. And just notice the reversals that take place here. There's the reversal of darkness turning to light. There's the reversal of oppression turning to freedom. There's the reversal of war turning to peace. So these are all different aspects of this hope that we see here. In Isaiah chapter 7, remember when you know, Isaiah is, is giving this warning of judgment, this impending judgment. Do you remember, what's the sign of God's judgment in Isaiah 7? A baby is going to be born. In Isaiah 7, it's important for us to recognize that when they first heard those words, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a child, and you will call him Emmanuel. Those words are in the context of God's judgment and his justice and his discipline. In Isaiah 7, the birth of the child was not a sign of good news. It was a sign of God's impending judgment that was going to come upon the people. So in Isaiah 7, the sign of God's judgment is the birth of a child. But notice also here that God promises hope and restoration. And what's the sign of that hope and restoration? The birth of a child. So in Isaiah 7, God's judgment is symbolized, is is the, the symbol of it, the sign of it, is the birth of a child. In Isaiah 9, 
The hope and restoration, the sign of that is the birth of a child. And what we know about this child is that this is no ordinary child. This is not just any son. Look at what this passage says about the son's identity and the son's kingdom. Verse 6 says, For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So this child that is to be born is given this title of Wonderful Counselor. And what that means is that this child is going to rule and reign with unobstructed wisdom. There will never be any aspect of his reign that is not completely shot through and and soaked in the depths of the wisdom of God. This child is also given the title Everlasting Father. It was common in the ancient world for uh, kings to refer to themselves as fathers of their people. This child is going to be a father to his child, but in a way that no earthly king ever could or ever would be. This child is also given the title of Prince of Peace. And again, this was one of the aspects of, this is what a king was supposed to do and provide for his people, was to provide safety and protection and to provide peace. That's what a king was supposed to do. And again, this child will do that, but in a way that is unlike any earthly king that we've ever seen. And he's also given the title Everlasting uh, mighty God, rather. And this is a title that is only used of God himself in the Hebrew Bible. And so we know that there's some amount of overlap, right, between what this child will do, what, who this child will be. There's overlap between this child and the function and the, and the role of an earthly king. And yet it's just very obvious that this child is going to do what these earthly kings were not able to do. All earthly kings are a shadow of what this son is going to be. And as you read the, the, you know, the history of the rest of the Hebrew Bible and see all the different kings that come after Ahaz, and, and you, know, you see even the good ones, and you're like, okay, and there's Hezekiah, and there's Josiah, and there's like a couple good ones in there. But even those kings never could bring about for the people what the people needed those kings to bring about for them. And so it still leaves us longing for, okay, there's got to be a better future king. We talked about that last week. It leaves us longing for this better future king. It leaves us longing for this child to be born. And so that's this child's identity. But just look briefly at what it says about this child's kingdom. Verse 7, Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing it and upholding it with justice and righteousness, from that time on forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. So the greatness of his government and his peace will have no end. He will reign on David's throne forever. And if Isaiah is right in saying who this son is, that he is wonderful counselor, he is mighty God, he is everlasting father, he is prince of peace. If that is actually true, this is the kind of king that we would want to reign over us forever. This is the kind of king we would want to have an everlasting rule and reign over us because of his character and because of his nature. 
The hope that Isaiah speaks of here in this passage is not merely rooted in the reversal of bad circumstances. That's not unimportant, okay? Don't get me wrong on that. Uh, It is good that darkness turned to light. It is good that oppression turned to freedom. It is good that war turned to peace. And we ought to long for those things. And we ought to work for those things, right? But the good news, the hope that is held out here is not just that there's going to be a reversal of circumstances. The hope that we see here that Isaiah talks about is found in the presence of a person. The hope is found in the presence of this child who is going to be wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. And as we follow the rest of the story of the Bible forward, we see that this hope and restoration that God promised through Isaiah comes to us, it comes to completion or to fulfillment in the person and the work of Jesus. Probably the the clearest, most obvious place we see this is in the book of Matthew. I want to just read a short passage from Matthew. Matthew tells us about the birth of Jesus, and then he talks about John the Baptist preparing the way. He talks about Jesus himself being baptized. He talks about Jesus being tested and tempted in the wilderness by Satan and going up against Satan in battle and being victorious against him. And then he gives this introduction to Jesus' ministry. In Matthew chapter 4, starting in verse 12, it says, When Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he withdrew to Galilee. Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali. That sound familiar? And he goes on to say that this was to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah. And he quotes, Land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, Repent, for the kingdom of God has come near. So notice what Matthew does here is he looks at the life and the ministry of Jesus. He looks at Jesus and sees Jesus announcing the good news of the kingdom of God, that it's, that it's here, that it's arrived, that it's come near. He looks at Jesus healing people and driving out demons and reversing the effects of sin. And he sees Jesus driving back the spiritual forces of darkness. And he sees him announcing the coming of the kingdom of God. And he points to Jesus and says, yeah, you know, want to know what Isaiah was talking about when he talked about light breaking forth in the darkness? He was talking about the arrival of Jesus. Jesus is the child who was promised in Isaiah chapter 9. He's the child that every successive king and every successive generation since Isaiah had been looking to and saying, man, wouldn't it be so wonderful if we actually had a child like that? Wouldn't it be so wonderful if we just had a king like that? And Matthew says, guys, don't miss it. He's here. And the life and the ministry of Jesus is a picture of light breaking into darkness. It's a picture of this child who was foretold, who left us, who, who we were left longing for and anticipating. Jesus is the one who is that child. In the last moments of our time together this morning, what I want to do is just zero in on one aspect of this child's identity that we see here in Isaiah, and that is that he is Prince of Peace. We do live in a world where peace is hard to come by. 
And the good news is that Jesus is our Prince of Peace. There's a couple different aspects to what that means. Uh, The first aspect is this, that through Jesus, we have peace with God the Father. This is the way that the writers in the New Testament talk about Jesus' work. This is the book of Colossians. This is one of my favorite passages in the entire Bible, where Paul, writing to the church in Colossae, says this about Jesus. In verse 19, he says, For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. So what Paul is, just understands and assumes is that we as readers know we have been estranged from God. Because of the, the sin and the idolatry that exists inside of our hearts, we have been alienated from God's presence. We've been exiled from God in relationship. He is the source of life. And outside of his presence, there is no life for us to be had. We've been estranged. We've been exiled from God's presence. And yet Jesus, through his suffering and death on the cross, has made peace. This is a relational peace that he's talking about. He talks about he's reconciled to himself. There's now peace between our relationship with God that didn't exist before. And the irony of this is that Jesus accomplished our peace in the least peaceful way possible. Right? Just, I'm just astounded that it says, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. This is literally the most humiliating and degrading and painful and shameful way to execute someone that had been invented until that time of history. And it was Jesus experiencing all of that. That is how peace between us and God was made. Jesus didn't have a you know, nice death. Jesus experienced awful, agonizing execution, and it was that that brought relational peace between us and God the Father. And so because of what Jesus has done, we have peace with God the Father. And what that also means is that through Jesus, we have peace that surpasses understanding. Paul writes elsewhere in the book of Philippians, he's he's talking about bringing everything to God in prayer. He says, don't be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, Present your request to God, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So there's an aspect of of peace that is relational peace between us and God, and there's an aspect of peace that's more of a subjective peace that we can feel and that we can experience in a way that we can't feel or experience the right relationship we have with God the Father. And so what, what the Bible tells us is that through Jesus, we have been restored in our relationship with God, which means that when we experience situations and circumstances that are filled with dispeace, that are unsettling, that feel unsettled, that leave us feeling anxious or, or feeling angst, when we experience those, even in the midst of those uh, dispeaceful kinds of situations, we can have an even deeper kind of peace that is not subject to all of the circumstances that are sort of on the surface. There's a kind of deep inner peace that we can have even in the midst of deep uh, and abiding dispeace because of what God has done for us in Jesus. If God has already uh, made our relationship right with him, if Jesus has restored that relationship, that is the deepest need that any of us have. And if that has already been settled, that means we can find peace in all kinds of other circumstances. 
And that's the hope and that's the promise of Jesus as our Prince of Peace. Through Jesus, we have peace with God the Father. Through Jesus, we have peace that surpasses all understanding. And we know that the Bible promises that one day Jesus will return to reign over us as our Prince of Peace. Jesus right now, in this very moment, is ruling and reigning over all creation. There's no question about it. There's no wringing of his hands in the heavens wondering how it's all going to turn out or wondering how he's going to, you know, fix this in the end. There's none of that. Jesus is seated on the throne in complete and total confidence and control as Lord and ruler over all people and all history and over all of creation right now. And we also don't experience his reign in the way that we were designed to. There's an aspect of his reign over us that we don't fully experience, and that is the peace that comes by having him as our Prince of Peace. What the Bible promises is that one day his kingdom will come on earth as it is in heaven, and at that time we will finally get to experience the kind of peace that we are designed for. We will finally get to experience what it's truly like to live under him as our Prince of Peace. So as we approach Christmas this year, as we go to Christmas and as we make our way through Advent and there's all the, all the things that come along with Christmas and Advent and the holidays, remember, as you journey towards Christmas and as we find ourselves as people, even right now, who are walking through deep darkness, we can do so with hope that the darkness will not have the last word. Amen? As we do each week, we're going to come to the communion table. And as we come to the communion table, we get to remember and celebrate what God has done for us in the person of Jesus. So I want to invite you, uh, as we come to the table, to spend just a few moments of silence for confession and reflection. Maybe there's something you heard this morning that you want to just ponder for a minute. Maybe there's some business you sense you need to do with God based on what you've heard this morning. But we just want to leave a few moments of space for you to uh, spend time in confession and reflection. And then we will come and celebrate Christ at the table.